So go ahead and grab your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 49. So this is the penultimate chapter, one of my favorite words, uh, just second to last. 50 chapters of Genesis, you didn't think we can make it, but I think in two weeks we will be done with this book. So that is exciting. Um, and we'll see where we go from there. I've gone back and forth on that. Um, Genesis 49. Uh, this is not a genealogy, but it almost is like one in the sense that uh, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And so it's got, um, it's pretty prophetic and it helps us to understand the rest of the Old Testament. I was having a conversation recently with uh, a Catholic and I, I've had this conversation with Catholics before, and uh, we were talking about Kentucky, and, and I'm Baptist, they're Catholic, and this person came from a, a Protestant background, and, um, and we were talking, and uh, I said, have you ever noticed where all the Catholics are in the state of Kentucky, and where all the Baptists are? I think we've talked about this before. So if you put up a map of Kentucky, and if you were to put all the Catholic churches on it, you'll notice a pattern. They follow the river. If you look at all the Baptist churches... It's, they, they don't really follow the river. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. When Kentucky was, people were immigrating to Kentucky, there were two ways to the promised land, the bluegrass state. One was the Ohio River. The other was the Cumberland Gap. Well, where were all the Catholics in the late 1800s, 1700s, and where were all the Protestants? And why were they coming this way? Well, uh, the Catholics came because the priests were sent, right? The Catholics were sent. And there's financial, you know, things. You can get land for cheap and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and there were other reasons, uh, like the Irish not really welcomed elsewhere. They get kicked out and brought down here. Um, but the Baptists were facing persecution in Virginia. That's how my family got here. And so to find freedom, they didn't leave Virginia. They went to, Vir for, they went to Kentucky County of Virginia. The whole state was a county. You, you, you talk about being the mayor of, of, or the judge executive of that county. I mean, that's, that's a massive piece of land. So facing persecution in Virginia, they obviously came through the gap. Whereas the Catholics are coming from Boston and places like that, they came down the river. So if you look at where the majority of Catholic churches in Kentucky are, it's Northern Kentucky, Louisville, uh, Breckenridge County where I was, uh, Owensboro, you just you go right down there. You can even go down a little bit of the Kentucky River. You'll see some of that. Uh, uh, um, but but it's interesting, isn't it? That was 200 years ago or more. And still, you look at a map, we are seeing the effects of that just practical reality of immigration. That's sort of the way life works. We, we don't think about the long-term effects of the lives we live and the decisions we make. But you can do this throughout history. In fact, there are moments in history you, you, can, you can think that, what if that election went differently? What if the war concluded differently? What if this or that? Uh, how different would things be? What you get here in Genesis 49 is Jacob is blessing his son, some good, some bad, some in between. And, and what we see is the long-term effects of that prophecy. And so ultimately what you see is like father, like son with each of these tribes. What is embodied in these sons, uh, for many of them, will become the story of that tribe. 
So it starts here while in Egypt, but even generations later, we see a pattern here. And Jacob, of course, makes these prophecies. Just to remind you how, how Genesis ends, we've looked at this. We've not spent a lot of time on, on this in the latter chapters, but we're in the reconciliation part, right? Jacob is, is addressing some of the hurts with, with his sons, but all of them will gather with uh, the death of, of Jacob. And as we'll see starting next time, verse 28 of this chapter going on in, Joseph and his brothers really reconcile. Because when Jacob dies, the brothers become really nervous. What is Joseph going to do? Because dear old dad ain't here to stop him. And so they, they have to address all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but let's start here with the introduction, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Uh, now, remember that we are ending the story of Jacob. Even though we've, we've, we've treated this as a story of Joseph, and it is that, it's more broadly the story of Jacob. And so the, 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 the camera lens is zeroing in on him. Joseph has saved everybody, great, but now the camera is, is zeroing in, in, in on him. And so here, Jacob does for his sons what Jacob robbed his father of doing. Jacob's going to bless all of his sons. And remember, Jacob kept his father from blessing his brother. So, uh, and these blessings are uh, somewhat prophetic. In fact, the language is prophetic. There in verse 1, gather yourself. That's the language that the prophets will use. Let me give you just two examples here. Jeremiah 49, I have heard a message from the Lord. Gather yourselves together. So on and so forth. Joel, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves there. The language in verse two of assemble yourself, very similar, even in the Hebrew. Uh, this is prophetic language that, that the prophets would, would use. By the way, I want you to notice verse two, it is how it parallels. It says the same thing on two lines in two different ways. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. And then it says, listen to Israel, your father. Remember, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So he tells them twice to listen to what it is he's about to say. And that repetition is for emphasis. It's typical Hebrew parallelism. Uh, we don't do that in English poetry, but it's common in ancient Hebrew. All right, the first son we meet is Reuben, verses 3 to 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. That sounds good, doesn't it? Right? You ever have a conversation with someone and they're really buttering it up? And the whole time you're thinking, there's going to be a but, isn't there? Verse 4 is the but. Right? Now, verse 3 is the idea because the oldest son should be preeminence. And we've seen early on that Reuben had a position of preeminence. He loses it. So here Jacob is saying, you ought to have this position of preeminence, strength and everything, because you are the oldest. But, verse 4, you ain't got it. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. You remember the story, I'm sure. It's uh, a shocking to, to the modern reader. It, it, it made sense, it makes sense in the ancient world, but it's still no less shocking. Remember that when Reuben's mother died, that he immediately went and slept with Jacob's concubine. That's odd to us. In the ancient world, that is an act of taking possession. You may remember the story of Absalom, 
when Absalom kicks his father out of Jerusalem, remember what he does is he, he uh, David keeps behind one concubine to sort of keep the, the, the palace together because David's coming back, right? He's just got to get a bigger army. He's coming back. So he keeps one concubine there. What, is, what does Absalom do? He assembles everybody and he uh, violates that relationship with the concubine publicly. And what that symbolized is Absalom has now taken the kingdom of David. This is the way it worked in the ancient world. It's foreign to us. And Reuben did that to his own father. Scandalous. And so Jacob is saying, you ought to be preeminent, but you're not because of of this sort of thing. And that reflects who, who he is. In fact, Throughout, we don't get a whole lot from, from the tribe of Reuben. However, often when Reuben is mentioned, this story is carried along with him. For example, in 1 Chronicles 5, this is part of this long genealogy in Chronicles. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, by the way, in case you forgot your Bible, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. I mean, this, this legacy went on with him. It's sad, isn't it? I'm willing to bet you can think of people in your life, if not more prominent people in you know, celebrities, politicians, what, their entire lives are defined by a single decision they made. It ruined their lives, ruined their family, whatever it is. And that's Reuben here. Uh, he should have been in a position of prominence in the family, but because of his own foolishness, uh, he, his father uh, dies, um, putting him in judgment. I want to read to you from a website I, I go to quite a bit uh, with this sort of stuff. Uh, Jacob's sad prophecy for Reuben certainly came true. No judge, prophet, ruler, or prince came from the tribe of Reuben, nor any person of renown except Dathan and Abiram, who were noted for their rebellion against Moses. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I didn't. Right, that's the point. Your most prominent people, you don't know who they are. Uh, Reuben's tribe chose a settlement on the other side of the Jordan, a further indication of the loss of godly influence on his brothers to which his birthright entitled him. Although Reuben was the firstborn, the kingdom was given to Judah and the priesthood to Levi, leaving Reuben's tribe to be small and non-influential. So that's Reuben. In verses five to seven, we get Simeon and Levi. It's interesting that these two are put together. All the other sons, they're separate, but these two are put together. Uh, Let's look at them real quick. We won't read every verse. Uh, Verse five, Simeon and Levi are brothers, obviously. But of course, what, what matters is not biology, but what they've done together. They are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Now, I find that language interesting because swords are weapons of violence. But remember, this is poetry. I think that's the point. We would expect uh, weapons of violence would be the tongue, something like that. We, we would look for a metaphor there. But there is no metaphor. What's the point? They're violent people. Right? So in poetry, it like violates the laws of poetry to metaphor. It just comes out and says, oh yeah, their there's swords are weapons of violence. What else is a sword for? <laughs> right? You, you don't buy a sword uh, to, to cut up a cucumber, do you? No, it's, it's for violence. And that's the point. This is who they are. Just come out and say it. Verse six, let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men, and in their willingness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
Now, you'll notice here the first three sons, a fourth of the 12 tribes, they don't get good news. <laughs> These are the people of God, by the way. Okay. And uh, now, why are they put together? Well, we read the story. You remember what happened when Dinah was, was raped by uh, the Shechemites? What do the sons of Jacob do? They go in and say, okay, you want to marry our sister? Great. All the men have to be circumcised. I thought, okay, we'll do it. The king says we got to do it, we'll do it. And while they are recovering from that surgery, what do they do? They go and slaughter everybody. Who led that act of violence? Simeon and Levi. And so Jacob comes and says, you are men of violence. And I don't want to be, on the, I don't want to be associated with that at all. I don't want to come into your company. I don't want to seek your counsel, nor should anybody want to. Because you are violent and you are cruel in that violence. Uh, and that's shocking considering who it is that, that, that we have here. Oh, by the way, that word curse you see there in verse 7. It's a strong word in Genesis. Uh, let's just look at some of the references to it. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, you're cursed. Same word. Chapter 4, to Canaan, uh, to Cain rather. And now you are cursed from the ground after you killed Abel. Uh, Noah gets two references. This is before the flood, uh, right before the, the flood narrative, uh, that the ground was cursed due to the fall. And then afterwards, you remember the story of Noah where his, his son Ham comes in and that weird scene? Noah uses this word to curse the son of Ham. So this is a strong word that Jacob uses for his own son. Two sons. They are cursed. Well, the tribe of Simeon becomes the smallest tribe in the census of Israel in the book of Numbers. Uh, they are eventually, by the way, that's Numbers 26. They are eventually swallowed up by the tribe of Judah, which is like the largest tribe. So there's the reference, Joshua 19.1, if you want to read it. The tribe of Levi, what's so significant about Levi? They get no land. So Joshua 18, you get no land. Now, why do they not get land? They're priests. Okay. However, uh, it is now their priest is an act of grace. Because remember, Moses is a son of Levi. Now, what does Moses do initially? Moses is the great deliverer. And he, he, he goes, he tries to deliver Israel two times. We know the second time he goes to, uh, to Pharaoh, let my people go, picks up, pick, picks up snakes and, and uh, turns water to blood, all that stuff. Remember the first time he tried to deliver Israel? What did he do? He killed an Egyptian. Son of Levi picked up the sword. His sword is a, is, is, is a weapon of violence. He had to learn to trust in the Lord's deliverance rather than his own. And you remember that Moses should have been the high priest. Because you remember the uh, priest king, the royal priesthood. We, we, we spent a long time talking about that back when we did Melchizedek a year or two ago. Uh, Moses should have been that. He should have been both priest and, and king, uh, loosely speaking, as king. Uh, but instead, it's given over to Aaron. So Aaron, the son of Levi, becomes the line of priests. And who is involved in the crucifixion of Jesus? It's the Sanhedrin. It's the priesthood. It's the Levites. And interesting. I mean, we just made a connection to Jesus. You never saw it there, did you? And, and don't come into their council. And yet God trusts them with the priesthood. Don't overlook that. That's grace. That's grace. God can use broken people to accomplish his will. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Well, let's look at Judah since uh, they're the most prominent. 
Uh, that's been a, a subplot of the Joseph story is the decline of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi and the rise of Judah. By the end of the Jacob story, Judah is the prominent tribe. This sets up, of course, David and Solomon and Jesus. So there's another connection. Jesus, he was the son of Judah. Uh, verse eight, Judah, your brother shall praise you. I'll just go ahead and throw this up here. Uh, the name Judah means praise. So you see the play on words. Judah, your brothers will Judah you, right? If, if, if you want to put it that way. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, there's so much here. Um, I want to do the, the, the necks on, on, on your enemies. That, of course, is, is an ancient way of, of describing power, authority, and subjugation. Let me give you an example of this. In, in Joshua, remember, they, uh, it's not Gad, it's not uh, Jericho. One of the cities they conquer, remember, they, they get all the kings, and, and one of the things they do is they all put their foot on the king's necks. When I was a kid, I had a children's Bible. It was an illustrated Bible. Uh, it, it had little pages in it. They were colored. And, and I learned a lot about the Bible. You know, a dozen stories, something like that. One of them, one of the most vivid images I remember is Joshua and all of them had all the kings, their foot on their necks, and they had these curved swords. I thought that was so cool. I'd never seen a sword like that. And that, that's the story they were, they were uh, illustrating. But it was Joshua and all the generals, the men, with their foot on the neck. Here it has Judah. You will have your foot on, on, on the neck. This is a language of influence, subjugation, power, might. But notice, your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, who is Judah's father's sons? Well, it's Judah's brothers, okay? Now, we just... Been, we've been looking at the story of Joseph. I thought the story of Joseph was about how Jacob's sons will bow down to him. Of course, they did that. In the prophecy, it's not that the sons of Joseph, that, that everyone will bow down to the sons of Joseph, but rather that preeminence is given to Judah. So in Joseph, yes, at, at that point in time, all the sons bow down to him. But now, moving forward, Judah will be the one of prominence. Well, this, of course, happens, particularly with the story of David, that he is able to unite Israel that split initially after the death of Saul, and they pay homage to him. And through them comes a line of kings. Uh, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So, by the way, one of the things we'll see, I don't know if we'll track this, the uh, language of animals uh, are used. The metaphor of animals are used a lot in, in, in these signs. Here it's a lion. Now, where do we see Judah associated with a lion? Of course, Revelation, that Jesus, the son of Judah, son of David, uh, is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, John is picking up on this imagery. And a lion is, is one that is mighty and great and powerful. This is messianic language. Christ comes as a roaring lion to die as a lamb. And that's how he conquers. That's John's point. Jesus conquers by laying his life down. Remember that now that we're in a post-Christian society. Because you'll forget it every election. Every time someone does something dumb. Right? You'll think power is in numbers and strength and influence. No, it's actually in laying your life down. So, anyways, that'll preach. Let's go. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, now we're looking at royalty, aren't we? So we have Judah as, 
as prominent. We have Judah as lion. Now we have Judah as king. You know where this is going. So, um, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I think there's a big debate there. Let me see. Uh, does anyone in verse 10 have the word Shiloh? What translation you got, Lonnie? New King James. New King James. So like the perfect, the second most perfect Bible behind King James, of course. Um, who else? King James. King James Shiloh. The American Standard. It's got Shiloh? Well, then you should trust anything Nasby has. That's my personal favorite. Well, the Net Bible is my favorite. Nasby is my second favorite. Um, okay. There's a lot of debate. The Hebrew word is Shiloh, um, but it, it can mean tribute. Um, I don't know which one's right. Trust your translation to move on, okay? Uh, but some, some, you know, what, what's really going on? It's poetry, so that only complicates it. Um, but go down to verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine. Now, it's interesting. Vine, his foal, king, Judah, lion, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Vine language is language of Eden. Read the prophets and to sit under the vine, the shade of the vine, that's the language of the millennium. Zechariah 3 would be a good example of that. You get the branch, the vitic branch and the vine. So, so this, and, and you have a donkey's colt, right? Jesus riding in. Some would make that connection. He has washed his garments in wine, his, his vesture in the uh, blood of grapes. Now, I think the idea there is prominence and wealth. That is that they're so wealthy, they have such a large amount of wine from the vineyard that they can wash their clothes in it. I, um, have you ever fixed barbecue ribs and Dr. Pepper? Do it if you're rich enough, right? I've done it once and I thought, you know, Dr. Pepper ain't cheap no more. <laughs> I'm going to find something else to do that in, right? Uh, that, that's the best illustration I've come up with. I know it's not that good. Um, anyways, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So this is Judah. Obviously, this is messianic and millennial, which is fulfilled in, in Jesus. Uh, can't spend forever on it. Zebulun is in verse 13. We would expect Dan next because he's the next in line born. However, the order seems to be by mother, not by chronological order. Do with that whatever you want. Uh, so the first sons of Jacob mentioned here are sons of Leah, the first wife. Uh, Zebulun is, is described as being close to the sea. Uh, of course, there's debate about that. Um, and But they would carry a maritime trade with the Phoenicians who were next to the sea. So... Do that, whatever you want. Issachar is verses 14 to 15. Uh, Jacob describes Issachar as strong and capable, but lazy. Ever meet these people? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, that's Issachar. All right, actually, let's read it just for kicks and giggles. Um, Issachar is a strong donkey. That sounds like a good thing. Crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. There's some debate here. What do you do with the forced labor? That's the language of the Egyptian slavery. Uh, we don't have uh, uh, in the Bible where they become slaves apart from the rest of the tribes. So it's, it's a lot of debate there. Um, but uh, what we do see is uh, they were strong. Judges 5, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. So you see, they're, they're going out of battle. They're, they're, they're strong folks. The problem is they don't do anything with it. They don't do nothing with it. You ever meet someone who you have all the talent in the world, no ambition, no drive, pure laziness. 
By the way, it's what we're raising with our men, by the way. So you've met plenty of them. Um, and I, I mean, I've, 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 I've joked that the number one pickup line a young man should use, I have a job. Because that alone will set you apart. I have ambition. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a plan. All right. I can provide. I will protect something. Use all of them. Put it on your online dating profile if you have to. With, with facial hair. I think that helps. <laughs> you ladies know I'm right. You ladies know. Now, you may want him to shave it afterwards. But you need, need to know at least he's man enough to grow up. Anyways, we're, we're going to move on. Uh, so, uh, what's that? Uh, yeah, yeah, but you didn't. Um, Dan is verses 16 to 18. The poem is divided into two parts. For 16, they will be like judges. That's a good thing. Judges advocate justice. The name Dan means judge. So, but they also be as one of the tribes of Israel. You see there in verse 16. Even though Dan was the son of a concubine, that's significant. Though Dan is the offspring of a non-wife, they are grafted into the tribes. That, that, is, that is important. But notice verse 17, they will not only judge, they will be fierce. They will use guerrilla warfare. Um, the most prominent Danite I could find, Samson. Samson was not much of a military leader. Uh, he was a dude that destroyed lion's mouths. Uh, he would just go in there and just start killing people. So Gad, verse 18, he's described as a violent tribe. Uh, and that seems to have been true. I'll show you this, First Chronicles 12. The Gadites there went over to David, the stronghold, wilderness, mighty, experienced warriors, expert in shield and spear, so on and so forth. Um, verse 14, the Gadites were officers of the army, um, so on and so forth. So, so that, this, this seems to have been true. Have you noticed the prominence of violence with these sons? Well, it's what we get in the story of Israel, or story of Joseph and Jacob. I mean, many of them were complicit in the violent oppression of Joseph. And then you get the Shechemite story, you get all this other stuff. I mean, they're violent guys. And this is what you see uh, long-term. Asher, verse 20. Asher means happy ones, happy one. His descendants will enjoy abundance given their allotment. They, they get good land. Um, Naphtali, verse 21. Uh, they are blessed that they will be fruitful. So fulfillment of the uh, creation covenant. Joseph is going down to verse 21. Obviously, this, this is one of the longest ones for, for obvious reasons. Verse 21, 22 rather. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. Um, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Sounds like he may be dad's favorite, don't you think? <laughs> Certainly sounds like it. Uh, he is described as fruitful and blessed despite opposition. That is the story of Joseph. Fruitful and blessed despite opposition. Now, a lot of, a lot of scholars like to debate, is Jacob describing Joseph or is he describing 
the, 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 those who would follow Joseph? Because you remember he gets two tribes from his sons. And I think the answer is yes. Because what we see in many of these guys is what they were in their life becomes their tribe. The tribe becomes uh, pictured in, in how they live their life. He's described as fruitful, verse 22, opposed, verse 23, protected by the mighty one, verses uh, 24 and 25. It's interesting. God is compared to a shepherd and a stone here. Isn't that interesting language? Shepherd language makes sense. The son of Judah will, hundreds of years later, proclaim the Lord is my shepherd. Um, now, that makes sense because this is a... This is a nation of shepherds. They understand that imagery intimately. When they think of their, of their role as shepherd and, and the relationship to the sheep, it helps them to better understand who God is. I'm his sheep. That is not a compliment. He is my shepherd. I'm dirty. I'm lazy. I'm, I'm prone to wander off. I'm vulnerable to attack. I'm, I'm timid. Uh, I can't provide for myself. What I need is a shepherd. And so he's described as this, but also as a stone. Now you read the Bible, the language of rock and stones are all over the place. Think about Jesus telling Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. And what does Peter mean? It's a little stone. So on this rock, little rock, I will build my church. And I think that's the rock of the gospel. If you read that text, uh, so God is described as a stone. And many think this is a reference to, you remember when, when Jacob had that experience at Bethel with God, he had that vision and stuff. You remember what he did to mark that this was holy, holy space? He grabbed a, a stone that I think he'd been sleeping on and he set it up and he says, this is a memorial to the God I just met. And, and here Jacob is saying that as he's been with you so far, he will be with you moving forward. Um, what a blessing. Oh, and by the way, verses 26, 27, Jacob says, you will be blessed more than my father and grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. That's pretty cool. Of course, part of that blessing is two of his sons become tribes. They are grafted into the, the covenantal promises of God. Last one, verse 27. Maybe we'll get out early. You're welcome. Benjamin is a, a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Now, no, we, we've seen a lion. Now we see a wolf. I think there's an eagle in there. We skipped uh, other animals. Uh, I read this uh, this week, and I thought, I was not expecting that about old Ben. Because Ben becomes the favorite after Joseph. And Benjamin can becomes the violent tribe. And, uh, by the way, that becomes the story of the tribe of Benjamin. Um. For example, in 1 Kings 12, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, the new king of Israel. He assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, uh, it's interesting. Uh, well, it's not interesting. It's, it's the southern tribes are Judah and Benjamin. So it makes it there. But notice there, the emphasis is on how many warriors he had. And it's associated, yes, with Judah, but also with Benjamin. Because of the house of Judah comes the kings. Out of the house of Benjamin comes the warriors, it seems like. Two Chronicles 14, and Asa, another king, had an army of 300,000 from Judah, 280,000 from Benjamin. Remember, Judah is this massive tribe, the largest tribe. Benjamin is this little tribe. This is little Sparta, if it, if it helps. Judah's Persia, and, and Benjamin is Sparta. And so they're, they're known 
um, as, as people of violence. I got uh, one more here and another reference. Of Benjamin Iliada, a mighty man of valor with 200,000 men armed with the bow and shield. By the way, to have an army of 200,000 men in the ancient world, that's a big old army. That is a big old army. To have 200,000 men uh, 150, 200 years ago is a big old army. Not so much now. China's got an army of over a million guys. So uh, this, is, this is child's play. But back then, because everybody dies by the time they're 15, so it's hard to keep... You know, they die by disease, they die by starvation, they die by war, particularly men, um, or they just die in their infancy. So uh, the length of lives are quite short. I say 15, it's really in the 30s probably. So that's a significant army. But there's another story that illustrates the violence of Benjamin. It is probably the grossest story in all the Bible. It's certainly up there. It is the conclusion of the book of Judges, the long story in Judges. Uh, you remember the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah where the angels are on the inside and the men come out and they want to violate. You remember that Lot offers his daughter, daughters and they turn, they, they turn the, the, the offer down. In Judges, that story happens again among the Israelites. It's the same story. Um, and the man of the house offers his two daughters to the mob and they... They violate them until they die. The bodies are found the next morning in the city streets. Now, pause there. What's the point of the story? In the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the people of God became worse than the Sodomites. That's worth meditating on, ain't it? It's worth meditating on. So the man does a number of things. Basically, the men who did that violent act were from the tribe of Benjamin. So the dad, uh, through a rather grotesque way, he lets all the other tribes know. And that causes civil war. Eleven tribes versus Benjamin. And they go to war. It's bloody. It's awful. That's how Judges ends. Israel at war with itself. By the way, that's what happens when everyone does it right in their own eyes. You end up in a sexually violent society. If only I could think of a modern example of that. Now, flip the page over. You get Ruth, which takes place in the story of Judges, okay? Keep turning the page to the next historical moment in, in, in Israel's history is the rise of King Saul. So you get Samuel's born in 1 Samuel. And Samuel's the last of the judges. He's the first of the prophets, the way it's often described. Samuel comes, and what does everybody want? A king. So they choose a king. And they decide on Saul, who's a tall guy, tall, dark, and handsome. His profile, he had a beard, of course. Uh, his pickup line is, I have a job, I'm king. Um, what tribe is he from? Benjamin. I believe Judges is written as almost anti-Saul propaganda. It's written by God, inspired, but it sure is interesting, isn't it? Judges ends with, you can't trust those Benjaminites. They are violent. They are sexually violent at that. They led Israel at war with itself. The first king, a man's got a lot of blood on his hands. Didn't they have to go chase women? What's that? Didn't they have to go chase wives? They killed the... Uh, <clears throat> 
Yeah. Yeah. We can't give our daughters to them. They're so lonely. Yeah. 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 Now remember what Samuel warns about a king. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your wealth, he'll take your land, he'll take all that. Well, what else would you expect from a Benjaminite? You, you, you get what you asked for. You knew what was going to happen. Here you go. It's the tribe of Benjamin. Can you name who's the most prominent Benjaminite in the Bible? Paul. Paul. There he is. Yeah. Paul, son of Benjamin. And he is, um, uh, he is uh, the most prominent apostle in the New Testament. Grace, much like the Levites. He was right? What's that? He was violent also. Yeah, he was, uh, he was something else. So what do we do with this? Uh, uh, just a few points, not spent forever. Um, behavior can last for generations. Um, I think this is something that we don't really talk about much. Is um, Can I just tell you that when you become a parent, get your act straight. <laughs> your kids do not need your issues. I don't understand why we don't get this. This is why you need Jesus at a young age. When you take on kids, you need to understand that Poor decisions, bad behavior can last for generations. Um, chances are, maybe in your family or in people you love, alcoholism has just destroyed lives one generation after another. And what I've had to tell a lot of people who have struggled with stuff like this, you know, my daddy was on drugs, my, my mom was alcohol, and all this sort of stuff, I'd say, look, someone has to break the cycle. And that is the hardest job in a family. You have to break the cycle. For one, the people in your family don't want you to break the cycle. They say they want you to, but, 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 but there's, there's such shame associated with that, that, that uh, it's, hard, it's hard for you to, to be that sort of person in your family. Someone has to break the cycle. But look, I, I tell young couples all the time, get your issues resolved before you have kids because there can be longevity with, with these issues. How many people that I've counseled, maybe you've talked to, uh, you, you realize that you had a messed up childhood and your kids are suffering for it. And you've never addressed this, this issue in, in your life. In fact, one of the things you'll find is, is uh, particularly a young women who grow up in chaotic homes, a lot of drama, uh, fatherlessness, whatever, like, like that. They meet a good guy. What happens? They run off from the good guy. They don't want to have anything to do with the good guy. Why? Because they struggle uh, with, with the certainty of love. This guy will love me forever and ever and ever. They've never had that. And there becomes peace, that's not the right word, there comes comfort in chaos. They're, they're drawn to chaos. They know it's not good for them. Right? That's, a, that's a generational cycle that you get. So what it is we get with these 12 tribes is Benjamin's violent, his descendants are violent. You get the same thing with Simeon and Levi and, and Reuben. You get the same thing. That, that, that decisions they make and everything, there's, there's long-term effects. So if you pursue Christ, you carry on godliness, that's significantly higher chance of that happening in, in children's or grandchildren's life. Secondly, faithfulness. Although Genesis ends with the Hebrews outside of the promised land, uh, we're seeing the beginning of God's faithfulness in that they are being fruitful and multiplying. Now, these are not the most righteous people, yet God was faithful to them. That's good news for the church to hear. We are not the most righteous people in the history of America or of Christianity, but we can rest assured, even despite that, though that's not acceptable, God will remain faithful to his church because the gates of hell will not prevail. Thirdly, grace. 
grace. We see that with Levi. We see it with Benjamin. We see it with Judah. Remember, even though Judah becomes prominent, he's not a good guy. Remember the story of of he sleeps with his twice daughter-in-law and impregnates her? That's Judah. That's Jesus's great, 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 great granddaddy. And yet he is the line of the Messiah. Uh, We did a three or four week series on the genealogy of Jesus. I'm sure it was just so riveting for everybody. But one of the the common themes in it is all these people are broken and yet God graciously put them in the story arc of the Messiah. That's the good news of Jesus. Finally, knowing the future affects our presence. Um, So here we're giving prophetic advancements of what's going to come as as we've shown. Um, But knowing the future is not a license to just wait around. It's a motivation to action. Jesus makes a big deal of this when he tells us about the end times. Be present, be ready. What does that mean? It's to find yourself in the will of of God every single day. It's probably uh, mythical, but uh, it's a good enough story it preaches at the very least. Martin Luther was asked, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? And his answer was, I'll plant that apple tree. His point isn't that apple trees are holier than pear trees. I don't know. His point is, I was already going to plant the apple tree. And if I am in the will of God planting the apple tree, then to do anything other than that simple act is an act of disobedience. The simple things, the ordinary things can be extraordinary. So maybe you're a student or maybe you're taking the kids to the dentist or, or maybe you're just going to work. Yes, you know what's coming, yes, and we long for the return of Christ. But knowing the future should affect how we live our lives in the present. If you know Jesus wins in the end, stop panicking every time you turn on the television. Maybe you should turn it off. Yes, it looks awful right now. It looks terrible right now. And maybe Jesus won't come back for another 10,000 years. I have no idea. But I know how it ends. It ends with Christ triumphing me, and the church is still there. And maybe I'll never see it, because Jacob never sees the promised land and the promises of God fulfilled. But knowing how the future ends and what will become of the future should drastically be a blessing to you here in the present. Yes? And it can be accounted to you as righteousness. That's right. That's right. Of course, their hope ultimately 